Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta, and I've noticed that many Catholics have gotten especially agitated over the fact that Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi received Holy Communion yesterday when she was at uh, St. Peter's Basilica for Mass. <clears throat> now, the first person who mentioned this to me said that she had received Holy Communion from the very hand of Pope Francis. And you can imagine the consternation that followed. But my friends argued that now, <clears throat> my friend argued, excuse me, <clears throat> that now the Pope, not just Nancy Pelosi, but the Pope was defying the Archbishop of San Francisco, uh, Archbishop Cordelione. You will remember last month, Archbishop Cordelione announced that Nancy Pelosi would not be admitted to Holy Communion in her home archdiocese. Now, he appealed to Canon 915, which says that Catholics obstinately persevering in manifest grave sin are not to be admitted to Holy Communion, end quote. And the big problem was, as you no doubt know, Nancy Pelosi has been championing abortion rights. Uh, so Archbishop Cordelion wrote, quote, a Catholic legislator who supports procured abortion after knowing the teaching of the Church commits a manifestly grave sin, which is a cause of most serious scandal to others, end quote. He also went on to record that for years he's been trying to have a dialogue with her on the subject. And it's worth pointing out that since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, uh, Nancy Pelosi has grown even fiercer in her advocacy of abortion. Now, issues that elicit moral indignation are all around us. And it's important to make sure that we get angry at the right time for the right reason and toward the right issue and the right person. Otherwise, we, we end up parading around carrying unnecessary burdens or we fly off the handle, uh, damaging our relationship with others. So on this issue, let me clarify a few things, okay? First of all, she did not receive Holy Communion from the hand of Pope Francis. That's an easy one. Second, she wasn't just present like any other communicant there. She did meet with Pope Francis before Mass, and she was seated in the VIP diplomatic section. Third, we don't know if the priest who distributed Holy Communion to her was aware of the controversy, but I know that Vatican officials know the story, and they could have responded differently had they been so inclined. They knew she was coming. Fourthly, there is no necessary reason to think, though, that Pope Francis or anybody else were personally defying Archbishop Cordelione. After all, Archbishop Cordelione has jurisdiction in the Archdiocese of San Francisco. He didn't declare her excommunicated. He didn't uh, argue that she... Uh, that he had authority to uh, forbid her to receive Holy Communion outside of the Archdiocese of San Francisco. You know, the Pope has universal jurisdiction. The Archbishop of San Francisco doesn't. Now, it's true that the Eucharistic ministers at St. Peter's, you know, could have been ordered to deny her communion. But let me tell you, it would have been the kind of intervention we almost never see within the Catholic Church, which actually functions very much like a bureaucracy. I'm talking here about the institutional dimension of the Church. Um, 
If they had intervened, it would have been perceived as taking sides in what the Holy See regards as an ongoing debate among American bishops as to who will withhold communion uh, from her or others and who will distribute Holy Communion to pro-abortion politicians. Ed Condon, in The Pillar, uh, really does a great job picking this all apart. He points out that also refusing communion to her would have had diplomatic repercussions, all right? Uh, She does represent the United States in a significant way. And Ed also uh, has a further analysis of this incident. He points out that many Catholic politicians, many Catholic state figures, uh, have presented themselves for Holy Communion over the years, right there at St. Peter's. And they might be really at odds with Catholic teaching, Catholic moral teaching. And yet, the default position has been to distribute Holy Communion to them, even if it creates some sort of controversy. So in 2011, the former Zimbabwean dictator, Robert Mugabe, famously received communion at St. Peter's during the Mass of Beatification for St. John Paul II. Now, hey, Mugabe was described as a dictator, a tyrant, uh, one of Africa's most brutal leaders, in fact, When he was given Holy Communion at St. Peter's, you would have thought this would have created a huge conflict. It didn't. And not many people thought that it meant that the Holy See was endorsing Mugabe's reign, all right? Now, on this matter of pro-abortion politicians receiving Holy Communion, Ed points out, Ed Condon points out in The Pillar, that actually Pope Francis said last year some pretty tough words. He said that those who are not in the community, meaning the church, who are not in the church, cannot receive communion. And then he went on even further than Cordelion went on. He described pro-abortion politicians as, quote, out of the community, excommunicated. Now, that's a harsh word. But they don't belong in the community because either they were not baptized or because they are estranged from it, end of quote. Now, I have no idea if he was expecting his words to be applied in this way. I don't know if he regarded his words to be binding on Eucharistic ministers. Probably not. I mean, if he's legislating, he probably would have circulated this in a document. But his words are tough, tough words. All this to say, though, that we shouldn't read too much into this event. It's not, it's not worthy of our anger. Um, the fact that uh, pro-life politicians, pro-choice politicians regularly receive Holy Communion. That's a great frustration. I understand uh, anger about that. But again, we don't have jurisdiction here. All right? This is uh, the Episcopacy has jurisdiction in this area. And I should mention again that it has been standard practice to distribute Holy Communion even to politicians who, well, I'll put it this way, who I would think, should be barred from the sacrament, all right? So here are three things uh, I know about. One, judging by her actions, Nancy Pelosi's soul is in jeopardy, and she needs our prayers. That much, I think, is easy to point out. Secondly, we shouldn't conclude that Pope Francis was rebuking Archbishop Cordelion. Yes, I personally would have liked to see him take direct action. But, you know, the Holy Father doesn't call for my advice. 
I do know that if he wanted to shame or humiliate or rebuke or correct Archbishop Corte Leone, he has far more effective ways of doing that than through some uh, coded behavior during the liturgy. And Pope Francis certainly needs our prayers as well. Third, if you're at all like me, then you probably need to become a better steward of your anger. You know, I, I need, and I assume you need, to calibrate, measure uh, anger more effectively. St. Paul made it clear, of course, that we can be angry and sin not. So let's be clear about that. There is a, a proper moral indignation. We can be angry and sin not. But you've got to balance that with what James says in the first chapter of his epistle, where he says the anger of man works not the righteousness of God. And most of us know uh, when we've been angry and it was fruitless, we're ranting, we're sputtering out of control, saying things we really don't mean, utterly worthless communication. On the other hand, I imagine many of us know times when we've been angry and that energy has actually been channeled into something fruitful, Uh, unexpectedly seeing ourselves in a mirror at an angle we hadn't noticed before, and noticing that, my gosh, I'm fatter than I thought, and then getting angry and, you know, go to join Weight Watchers or whatever, you know, works for you. So anger can be creative, and it can also be destructive. And so the question of properly discerning and handling our anger is something that's a con- been a constant issue for human beings. This, these stories are woven into our fairy tales, the right use of anger, the wrong use of anger. Uh, our myths, uh, our proverbs, our wise sayings, the scriptures certainly show Jesus uh, when he's angry, driving the money changers from the temple. It also shows him restraining himself as he's being mocked. He's silent before his accusers. Homer's Odyssey has an important scene, which I've mentioned before on this program. Odysseus has just returned home from his long odyssey. So he's with his son, uh, Telemachus, and they're planning to reclaim Odysseus' home. Because while he was gone, there have been decadent rabble-rousers who went and squatted there, abusing his wife, dishonoring his memory. And Odysseus tells his son, Telemachus, who, by the way, is ready to pounce like Rambo, he says, to be angry is easy, but to be angry at the right men at the right time for the right reason is difficult. Many of us have been sorely disappointed in the institutional dimension of the Catholic Church. I mean, I love to say that when I returned to the Church, the two saints, that two saints composed the face of the Church to the world, St. John Paul II and St. Mother Teresa. Today, when the world thinks of the Catholic Church, they're not thinking John Paul II or Mother Teresa. They're thinking about other Catholics. I love being Catholic. I love believing the truths of the faith. I love the commandments. But I know that many of us are confused by what appears to be an unwillingness among church leaders to handle liturgical and catechetical problems. Now, this, this varies from diocese to diocese, so I'm not making a blanket judgment. But it's good to remember, it's good for me to remember, that when I get angry about these things, that Jesus remains the head of the church. It's really his project. Uh, I have a share in it, but ultimately it's his body, the church. He's not neglectful. He's not taken by surprise. He is the Lord of creation. He is the Lord of history. He is the Lord of the church. St. Paul talks about this in the book of Ephesians. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. It's a long-term project. It's before the foundation of the world. We should be holy and blameless before him. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Again, God has a plan. So let me point out that when these anger comes, whether it's an outburst or whether it's simmering anger, distinguish between the church as communio and the church as institution. And the next time you remember, you find that irritation, agitation, fury rising, remember God has a plan for you, for the church. And for you, his plan is what he said to St. Paul, that you should be holy and blameless before him. Ask yourself if the anger you're feeling is fueling that purpose, being holy and blameless before him.